this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And if you do not have a Bible, there should hopefully be a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 223 of the, the Pew Bible, uh, the Bible that's placed underneath the chairs. As you're looking for that passage, 1 Samuel 16, uh, Brandon did a great job of explaining uh, the resting months that we participate um, in here at, at Grace Covenant Church, and I just wanted to take a moment to uh, say a, a huge thank you to those who are in April and in August and December getting, getting just a, a moment to rest. So we have many men and women who um, participate in teaching Sunday school classes from all ages, and this is an opportunity in, in those months for them to, to slow down just a bit, and we wanna thank each of you for serving in that capacity and then for our care group leaders, uh, husbands and spouses that do a lot of planning and prepping and checking in on and hosting, and the, the list goes on and on, a lot of things that happen behind the scenes. We're so very thankful for our care group leaders and giving them an opportunity to rest as well. Um, so I just wanted to, to make note of that as we uh, transition now into our, our time in the Word of God. So thankful that we can continue our study through 1 Samuel chapter 16. In this chapter, we are introduced to all three, two of whom, characters we have seen quite a bit of, Saul and Samuel, uh, but the third, David, is introduced. And so if you look at 1 and 2 Samuel as a whole, these are the three prominent uh, men of God, who men who are, are looked at and their lives are analyzed and unfolded before us. And so with that in mind, let's now open up God's word and please follow along as I read. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for, him, for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came... He looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy, he was ruddy and had a beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Samuel's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread, and a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played, played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Hear the word of the Lord. This chapter begins with a description of Samuel grieving over all that has transpired in Saul's kingship, what, is, what has happened in the land of Israel. And I think it's, it's good for us to spend just a moment thinking about where the Lord finds Samuel and, and then calls him to, to get up and go. When C.S. Lewis wrote of his wife's death, his opening words were, no one ever told me. And so maybe having been prepared for the idea of his wife passing, he was ill-prepared for the grieving that would come afterwards. And maybe for some, that resonates with us. Like, you, you may understand that death is upon someone that you love, and you begin to come to grips with that, but then the grieving happens, and you may respond that same way, no one ever told me. The Bible regards grief as a very real thing. We, we see it right here in our, our passage. Jay Adams described it once like this. Grief may be called a life-shaking sorrow over loss. Grief tears life to shreds. It shakes one from top to bottom. It pulls a person loose. He comes apart at the seams. Grief is truly nothing less than a life-shattering loss. And in the process of, of grieving, whatever it is that, is that has happened in your life that has caused grief, 
we have to understand that it may be complicated with such things as guilt or anger or even fear. And that grieving can happen going forward without sinning, but we also can see that grieving can be filled with with sin, sin as well. When, when that grieving turns towards anger or, or bitterness, where sorrow becomes this over-sorrow, where you have been paralyzed and not fulfilling what God has actually called you to do. And here we find Samuel being gently rebuked by the Lord for his ongoing grief. The, the tragedy of Saul's failure was real, but it was not everything. Samuel was, was, was not to be so overwhelmed by all that had happened, the calamity, to fail to see God's hand in it and God's purpose beyond it. And so he comes to Samuel and says, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. God's plan is continuing to unfold and Samuel is called to be a part of that. And then in verse 2, we see Samuel's response. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And then the Lord helps him even in this. And it's interesting here. There is an obvious recognition that Saul's response, even to this idea of Samuel going, um, Samuel knowing that, that Saul has has been responding in ways that are, that are not, uh, not good and, and unknown how he would even respond. To think that he would be killed over going to Bethlehem after God calling him to go does indicate something that's going on in Saul's life, which we will get to. But here, Samuel, thinking that Saul will see this as a, an act of treason, uh, this going to a, a, anoint David... It's important to note that what God's calling him to do in this anointing of David was not talking about David overthrowing Saul's kingdom or some, some kind of coup. Rather, this anointing would happen and then later as Saul's demise continues at the appointed time, David would be raised up as his successor. But the journey for Samuel needs to be camouflaged. So the Lord in his uh, divine wisdom provides Samuel with what he needs, a plan in which to accomplish this particular purpose so that if word does get out to Saul, it will not alert him to think, okay, I need to put this man to death. He is, he is uh, committing treason upon the kingdom of God. And so, so the Lord said to him, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, for some, you look at that and you go, man, that really looks like uh, a form of deception. We need to kind of think through this. There are some conditions here. This is not bearing false witness that we see in the Ten Commandments. Uh, this is a deception here directed by God, similar to examples that we see in Scripture of like uh, the, the Hebrew midwives, where, where they are saving uh, babies being born uh, outside of the will of of Pharaoh or, or Rahab hiding the Israelite spies from her own people. There are these cases of deceptions like, like these that, that really do need to be weighed uh, with particular circumstances involved. Um, but what we see here is God providing Samuel with a way 
to fulfill what he's commanded him to do in such a way where it will not alert King Saul. Verse 4 is important. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And he approached the elders of the city and, and continued to fulfill what God had called him to do. This emphasis on obedience. So where he was maybe uh, stuck in this form of grief where, where the Lord calls him out, tells him to get up and go, at that moment, Samuel still had a choice. Would he actually obey what God had called him to do? And we see the faithfulness of this prophet of the Lord obeying what the Lord had commanded and going to Bethlehem. Now, this exchange with the elders of Bethlehem are, is also kind of interesting to note. They were told were trembling upon Samuel's arrival. We're not told exactly why. If you just kind of think for a moment uh, of what, what has happened in the land of Israel, the end of chapter 15, we see Saul's third major failure. He was to destroy, to blot out the Amalekites. And we read very clearly that he did not do so. He blame shifted. He blamed on the people why they, why they kept the best of the flocks, the spoils. King Agag is still in the presence of the people. That's, that's alarming. That, that shows right away that Saul was actually disobedient to what God had told him to do. And we see this very graphic scene where the prophet Samuel is actually the one that, that destroys, that puts to death Agag. He is the one that, that hacked him to death. And you just have to think, word's probably gotten out. That it was Samuel that, that followed through in obedience to what the, the Lord had called Saul to do. That, that may be ringing in the elders' ears. Another thought is that this was, this was outside of Samuel's circuit as a prophet. So in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, we're actually given kind of the description of his, his work, his, his circuit. Um, in verse 16 of chapter 7, it says, he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And so it seems that, that Bethlehem was not the, the normal route in which, or place in which Samuel found himself. And so they may be surprised in trying to figure out why is is Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, with us now? They also may be thinking, okay, if, if Samuel has fear that, that Saul is going to kill him for stepping outside of line, what would King Saul do to us if we're somehow mixed up in something that we shouldn't be mixed up with? Because we also read at the end of chapter 15 that, that Samuel and Saul, they parted ways, and, and Saul would, or Samuel would not see Saul again until the day of his death. So there's probably a lot of things going on. We're not, we don't know exactly what was going on um, in the minds of the elders, but they came trembling, wanted to know if he came peaceably, and sure enough, he was able to say with the Lord's direction, I come peaceably, I've come here to make a sacrifice. Consecrate yourself, and then I also want you to, uh, I want Jesse and his sons to be a part of what is about to transpire. So seeing, so to speak, seeing the heifer kind of uh, made them, uh, disarmed a little bit, feeling like, okay, there was a sacrifice, this calmed their, their nerves, there's a reason why, a good reason why Samuel is here in our midst. Then we get to uh, verse 5, and the latter part of verse 5, and he, he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. 
We read in verse 1, Jesse being introduced. We see it again in verse 5. This is the reason why, ultimately, Samuel is in Bethlehem. And so, thinking about this for just a moment, the line of Jesse. During the time of the judges, so we're going back in years, there was a famine in the land. And a family from Bethlehem sojourned to Moab. Eventually, the father and sons of this family die off, and there is a widow remaining named Naomi. And she's there with her Moabite daughter-in-laws. One decides to leave, but one named Ruth decides to stay. Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. In Ruth 1.16, there's this famous uh, saying that Ruth says to Naomi, For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. And together they would eventually return to Bethlehem, where one of Naomi's relatives, Boaz, would provide for them. He would eventually become the kinsman redeemer for them. And this description comes at the end of Ruth. We read from God's word that Boaz marries Ruth, and she becomes pregnant. And I want to read some verses for you that we find in Ruth. The, woman, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David, the great-grandson of Boaz and Ruth. And so it's not just by happenstance or chance, or coincidence that Samuel is called by the Lord to go to Bethlehem to find Jesse and to look upon one of his sons. And it's just amazing to take a step back and see God's plan of redemption unfolding from his word. And so this description, I have provided, verse 1, for myself a king among Jesse's sons is a very important line in Scripture. God sees, that word provided could be translated sees. I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. God sees in a way that man does not see. I have provided for myself a king. This was God's choice. If you've been tracking along with us through 1 Samuel... Saul was the people's choice. This is God's choice for a king. And this is really important when we come to verse 7, which is a, a I, I would say, kind of a linchpin for the book of Samuel in understanding it, wrapping our minds and our hearts around it. So we have this scene. Samuel is now in Bethlehem. And he is called, he has consecrated the elders and Jesse's family and now the sons of Jesse are beginning to be brought in front of him. 
and the Lord will let him know who it is that he is to anoint. He has filled his horn, he is ready, and we see the first son, the eldest son. In chapter 17, we get a little bit more description that the first three that are laid out before us are the the oldest three of uh, Jesse's sons. So Eliab is brought before him, and what is so amazing, if you've been, again, following through this book, is when the people cry out, desire a king like the nations, and they set their eyes on Saul, physically, he matches exactly what they would want in a king. The outward appearance is what draws them to him. And it's, it's quite amazing that even here, when Samuel sets his gaze upon the eldest, his mind begins to kind of move in that same direction. Like, surely, after looking at this young man, so presentable, this must be the one that the Lord is going to anoint. And we then see verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. First, I think it's important for us to just recognize that we fall right in line with the people of Israel, even with Samuel's first tendency to be obsessed with the external. People look at outward appearances, and for many of us, it matters greatly. It, if, it, it will... It will for, for a lot of us, steer the direction in which decisions are made. And we, again, according to the flesh, fall right in line, choose what is impre- uh, impressive, choose what is, what is shiny, what is pleasing to the eye, what, what seems to be powerful. It, it seems right to us to gravitate towards the outward. And, and we, need, we need to know that this is rooted in, in the fall, so going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, this is, this is nothing new with human behavior. Genesis 3, 6 tells us, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for, the, for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took, it, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And ever since we have been walking right in step without God's gracious intervention of being led according to the sight versus being led according to or living by faith. This is, this is our default position. God must intervene for that to change course in our lives. And so please don't see the, the choice of the Israelites or even Samuel's uh, tendency as something that is foreign to us, but it is something that we all find relevant and real in our own lives. But I, I don't think that we can stop there. As, as I was digging through this passage and studying the text and really trying to, to get at the heart of what's going on, what the Lord's communicating in verse 7, I was greatly helped by one Old Testament theologian, John Woodhouse, wrote a commentary on 1 Samuel. And as we think about the first son, Eliab, And the rest of the seven brothers, I don't think that we can just think, okay, on the outside, they all looked really good, but but on the inside, they were all 
wrong. It was all, um, it was all outside of what God would have chose. He rejected all of them. They may have looked nice on the appearance, but in the heart they were not right. And then you get to, to David, and his outside appearance is described in verse 12 as pretty good-looking as well on the outside, but yet something's, something's different about why God chose David. And I think if we're not careful, we can start thinking that it all has to do with how good David was, how unique and special and right he was. And what John Woodhouse helps us here, I think, is, is describing the emphasis in verse 7 being not on the heart of David, but on God's point of view, according to his heart. So he translates this from the Hebrew like this, but the Lord looks according to his heart, not according to the individual's heart, but God views things from his eternal perspective, according to his perfect counsel and will. Now, if that's not landing just yet, I want to just back up a little bit because in chapter 13, after Samuel's first major failure as king, if you remember, he offered a sacrifice in which he was not permitted to offer. He did not wait upon the Lord, wait upon Samuel to arrive. A big no-no, a huge display of, of disobedience, of, of failing as king, Samuel comes to him in verse 14 and tells him after this failure, verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now again, the expression, a man after God's own heart, in our kind of Christian jargon, usually has to do with more of the qualities of the person. Do I have a heart that is after the Lord? Is it, it, would he look upon me like he saw David and say, that is a man after my own heart? However, the expression could be literally again translated, the Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart. This is about the place this man had in God's heart, rather than about the place that God had in the man's heart. So this is really to emphasize God's perfect will, his plan unfolding in why he chose David and not the other seven sons of Jesse. It's actually to make much of God and his purposes, not to make much of this shepherd boy. Saul was the people's king. God would raise up a man according to his own heart. Now, it is beautiful as this unfolds that this happens to be the youngest, the lowest in rank, whose family really didn't even have much regard for him. It had to be the prompting of Samuel to actually get Jesse to say, oh yeah, there is one more and he's out tending the sheep. The, the Lord's using all of this to accentuate who he is and how he accomplishes his purposes, to make much of him in calling this lowly boy from a very obscure place, this little town of Bethlehem. You see this actually um, being built upon by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4. God calls the things that are nothing or not 
and bringing them and making them something. In Romans 4, 17, he is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God can use nothing to create everything that he needs to accomplish his purposes. This should be so encouraging to us. Wherever you find yourself in your plight, however low you feel, like you're just not gifted or equipped with the right resources to really make much of a difference, God uses the lowly, the weak, to accentuate his grace. It is when we are at our weakest that his grace shines brightest. His grace is sufficient for us in our weaknesses. And so as we think about him calling out David, the, the lowliest in rank and in vocation, a shepherd, we'll look at that in just a moment. Really, this, this is true of everyone in Christ. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. If you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you have royal blood pumping through you this morning as sons and daughters of the great high king. What I just read from was Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. So to just think a little bit more about verse 7, we must not conclude from verse 7 that God opposes fine appearances as if ugliness is what he's looking for, but to think again about the description that we even hear of, of David, he was ruddy. Now that could either be a description of his hair or skin tone, but the, the word ruddy translates of a red color, of a lively flesh color, or the color of human skin and high health. A healthy individual had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So it wasn't that he would not choose someone because some, you know, their appearance is, is nice. Rather, the, the point or one of the, the, the takeaways is that external appearances neither qualifies nor disqualifies. It simply doesn't matter nor does it matter your rank or position. So this is where I want us to think a little bit more about David. Yes, we've already seen he's the youngest of the brothers, but this shepherd boy, the vocation of a shepherd, shepherding was a lowly occupation. It was probably um, a reality that when, when, when David finally came in as they're waiting for him before they would begin to uh, feast together, that he was quite smelly, that it was not a good uh, aroma coming off of this young shepherd boy. Yet that is exactly who God wanted to use to accomplish his purposes. Shepherding. Will, William Blank, Blakey, an old Scottish minister, wrote this about shepherding. The duties of the shepherd, to watch over his flock, to feed and protect them, to heal the sick, to bind up the broken, to bring again that which was driven away, corresponded to those which the faithful and godly rulers owed to their people if they were going to lead them. And so if, as you see God's plan unfold, who is it that he chooses to be the next king of his people but a shepherd 
and ultimately God's promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, his own son, would take up this emblem of the shepherd to depict exactly what he was uh, to be like as he ruled over God's people, as he ruled over his own, his sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, John 10. I am the one who lays down my life for the sheep. And so far from being disqualified because he was out tending the flock in the fields, David was actually being specially prepared for God's selection as king. A king whose heart was that of a shepherd. One who would then write many psalms that we sing and pray. Psalm 23 that would help us understand how God is the good shepherd and how he cares for us, his sheep. I just want us to see as this is unfolding before us, in verse 7, this is God's doing, perfectly unfolding his perfect counsel and will before us in the pages of Scripture, accomplishing all of his purposes perfectly, exactly in his timing with the, with the person that he chose and this should actually help us take us a few steps back and respond in, in praise and worship as we watch God do what only God can do. It should lead us to doxology. God's vision for his sheep, meaning all of his people, is to continue to have shepherd leadership until the, sheep, the chief shepherd appears. And so it's good for us to hear, you, you have five elders, under shepherds, that God has, has called to care for the flock here at Grace Covenant Church. And so we don't take lightly when we hear from the Apostle Peter, for example, in 1 Peter 5, what we are to be about. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is, to be, is, that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so God choosing this lowly shepherd will actually then lay the groundwork for how God's people are to be cared for and to help all of God's people hope in the fulfillment of what a shepherd should ultimately be, which is found in the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we saw in Sunday school this morning, all shadows pointing towards the substance all the promises made, revealed ultimately, and culminating in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should lead us again to worship because this is the one, this chief shepherd, who is right now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. So as we sheep, how dumb we are, needing to be shepherded daily, moment by moment, what great peace and encouragement to know who it is that is shepherding us. That's why we really, words matter. We, we, we call ourselves under shepherds as elders. 
Because there is only one chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we look to, the, the head of the church, and we, the bride. And what great comfort to know that it is Christ Jesus who is the one caring for his sheep. Verses 13 and 14 of this passage are also very important. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that being David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And then verse 14 is also very important. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. The most important factor in the life and service of David is that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. And the most important factor in the life and service of Saul is that the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. I want to just remind us that the rushing of the Spirit indicates his equipping the people whom he has chosen to equip to fulfill tasks of leadership, specific functions that, that God has called a certain person to do. So aside from the saving activity of the work of the Holy Spirit and the empowering ministry by which believers are being sanctified and enabled to live holy lives, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in this example and many others in the Old Testament being poured out or rushing upon select individuals to equip them to perform specific important tasks in the covenant community of Israel. They, the, the Spirit comes upon or rushes upon them to empower, to enable, to equip, to equip them to, to fulfill what God has called them to do. I think it's also important to remember, consider what David had in mind when he prays in Psalm 51, verse 11. He prays to the Lord, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I think it's very important for us to remember the, the context and what he's praying here. Are we talking about his salvation, that he's praying that God would, would not remove his salvation from him? I do not believe that is so. So I want us to think for a moment, this is after he committed grievous sins as king. You remember Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. He had him killed so that he could have his wife. Horrific sins committed by the king of Israel. And you can only imagine that David had in mind probably this particular passage in the life of King Saul, where the spirit of the Lord departed from him. And so his prayer is that God would not withdraw the enabling, anointing spirit of God to help him fulfill his call as the king of Israel. He prays that that would not befall him, that he would not experience what Saul experienced. What we also are introduced to here as the spirit leaves Saul is that Saul is also experiencing torment. The spirit of the Lord has departed from him, and misery and distress was caused by a harmful spirit from, from God. In this latter section of the chapter, we're also introduced to, to a description of David's service. So 
There's a reason why David is called to the king's court. And again, it, it just lays out in an amazing way the Lord's providence. Saul does not know that David has been anointed by Samuel to be the king who would succeed King Saul. He does not know this. And so all that transpires in these last few verses are just quite amazing. That the rejected king is calling upon the anointed king to come and minister to him. Like the, the irony, it's just, it's unbelievable to just slow down and kind of think about how the Lord is unfolding all that transpires in these few verses. I can honestly say that I have really struggled and wrestled with how, how to approach this, uh, this tormenting, uh, dangerous or uh, harmful, sorry, spirit that, that has been sent by God to King Saul, what I, what I do feel confident in, in saying is that this situation that he's experiencing underlines the fact that God has clearly rejected him as king. We see that from God's own words to Samuel. Very clearly, he has been rejected as king over Israel because of his disobedience. It's not that God just had a different plan at this point. You know, you've, you've been used for a period of time. I no longer have use for you, so now I'm moving on. No, Saul disobeyed God. And what we see unfolding here with the spirit departing and this harmful spirit sent by God coming upon Saul is that he's experiencing the judgment of God. That, that right there is is about as clear as I can get in understanding all that's happening. It is clear from this text that it is sent from the Lord, and it is also clear that because of Saul's disobedience, these events are transpiring in his life. And so he has servants in his court who recognize that this harmful spirit has been sent by God and have a plan. They know that if a lyre or a musical instrument is played, it can, it can soothe King Saul. It can help him in his troubled state. And so they pitch this to the king. Saul likes it. And, it, and it's just amazing that it happens to be the son of Jesse, the youngest, who is talented and ready to be able to provide this, this ministry to the king. We also see this description of, of David, which I think is, is a helpful one, given to us by one of the servants of Saul. In verse 18, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skilled in playing, but much more than that, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And most importantly, this last description and the Lord is with him. And so we see the events unfold. Saul says, go for it. They bring him in. And sure enough, David is able to play this instrument, the lyre, that was like a small looking harp for the king when he is being tormented. And it brings, it brings relief. He is able to, to help in this situation. Now, one, one commentator, Gordon Ketty, writes this, and I I think, I think it's helpful to kind of think through. Having diagnosed the need for heart surgery, 
thinking about King Saul, they proceeded, his servants, to prescribe really just a sedative. While we should acknowledge that not all psychological struggles stem directly from spiritual roots, it remains the case that unrepented sin is often the cause for emotional, psychological, and even physical distress. Yet Saul, thinking on no higher plane than his advisors, his servants, he consented to their plan and ordered that he be provided a man who could play well. In a sense, what I think this commentator is driving at is this is simply a band-aid for something much deeper in Saul's life, that there was actually a need for heart surgery. What, what I believe he means by that is there was a need for a recognition of his sin and a, re, a true repentance, a, a true dropping to his knees and crying out to the Lord, forgive me for I have sinned. And yet we, we do not see that in the life of Saul. Rather, they, they provide a, an alternative that for, for a period of time does soothe his needs. We see that at the end of the chapter, when David would play, he was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. But if you have continued to read through 1 Samuel, we see that this was not a cure for all that was going on in his life. And so there was a need for heart surgery. And yet they're still kind of looking for the topical um, balm for a wound that, that is much deeper than just a man coming and playing a, a musical instrument. We'll see all of that, Lord willing, unfold as we continue to move through 1 Samuel. In thinking about kind of wrapping this all up, I had mentioned reading a portion from Hannah's song in chapter 2. And I want to take us back there just for a moment and think about some of the, the main points in that, in that prayer or that song of Hannah's. There are some themes that come out that I think are so applicable to what we see unfolding in 1 Samuel chapter 16. First, we see in, in her prayer that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. We see this play out in Saul's life, in Samuel's life, and in David's life in different ways. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. What we also see is that in despite of, of human evil, disobedience, God is at work. And so even though Saul has made a complete train wreck of his, of his kingship, we, we see a larger sovereign God picture happening here unfolding where, where this does not catch God by surprise and somehow he has lost control of, of the people of Israel and he doesn't now know what to do, so he's got to kind of create a plan B. God is moving and working and even using the evil choices of one man to accomplish his purposes. God is at work. And then lastly, at the end of her prayer, there is, there is this prophetic uh, cry for, for a king to be provided. And it is this, this truth that God will raise up a messianic king. There is a, a promise, a hope, that there will be one who will come and who will rule and reign in such a way where the people will be cared for. 
and guided and led in a way that, that glorifies God and is for their good. And what we see is we see glimmers of, of that reality, shadows in the life of King David as he is anointed and then placed into that leadership role. But ultimately, through the promise fulfilled in the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes and rules and reigns as king. Let us pray. Father, we come before you as your people, and I pray that you would help us bow in humble reverence before your holy face this morning. Father, in this passage, we have been able to see and behold uh, the plan of your redemption unfolding in, in this passage and as we've been working through 1 Samuel. And it is, it is beautiful to see how you accomplish your purposes in calling according to your heart. And Father, as we think about your great plan of redemption, reminded in adult Sunday school and again of what you will accomplish through the stump of Jesse. Father, you are the one who decreed your plan of redemption and the son of David, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who accomplished redemption. And as we see the triune God at work in our salvation, the Holy Spirit applying this great plan of redemption. Father, we praise you for your work in our lives. And Father, we thank you for, for your, your word becoming so alive and rich in our lives as we see the life of Samuel and what we can glean from him as the, the prophet who, who obeys you. And as we look at Saul and his failures and, and we analyze our own lives, Father, may, may this not fall on deaf ears, but may we, we take account of how we are responding to your commands in our own lives. And may we not follow the same hardened path of unrepentance, but may this even be the day where you bring to light areas of our sin, <clears throat> areas of sin where we, we need to acknowledge, repent, confess, and plead for your renewal in our lives. And then, Father, for the, the hope of what you accomplished through this little shepherd boy, David, Father, there is so much for us to glean, and we pray by the power of the Spirit that you would apply these things to our hearts and to our minds. And may we join Hannah's prayer in saying, Our hearts exult in the Lord. The horn is exalted in the Lord, because I rejoice in your salvation. God, there is none holy like you, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.